0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Growing Up Eight podcast. I'm your host, David Youngblood, and today's episode is entitled The Dynamic Duo Having Fun with Your Little Brothers. The pliability of younger siblings can be an endless source of entertainment if cultivated with care and attention. But to paraphrase Adam West, famed Cape Crusader in the three season run of Batman from the late 1960s, if only the cultivators are careful to use their powers for good instead of evil. The Batman series was seminal to my own education, and as my brothers often reminded me, it was their assistance that helped me to form my first words. As I flew through the air and was passed from hand to hand among my older brothers as an infant, they sang the theme to the show thrilling as they ended the na 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 only to have me end with the babbled Batman, my first words. As a family of eight children, someone was always filling the youngest slot. And this position was continually changing hands until it finally landed on John and Mark. It was rare for us to ever say one of their names singularly. They shared everything, including, in our eyes, the youngest status. What John got to do, Mark was allowed as well, despite the year difference. We were all responsible for bringing up the youngest, from changing diapers to keeping them busy while Mom did the things needed to keep the household running. In fact, there was some fear for the early part of Mark's childhood that he would not learn to walk. With six older guardians, his feet rarely touched the ground, and as he would be passed from one of us to the other. Finally, in an effort to catch up to the milestones Dr. Spock presented in Mom's baby manual, she made us promise to let him move on his own for extended periods during the day. We agreed reluctantly. Both John and Mark held within their tiny bodies a dream secretly shared by many of us in the tribe. As a rule, Mom and Dad were pretty open to our dreams and allowed us to pursue most of our imaginative ones. However, both frowned upon the circus life. While our grandfather did manage to secure tickets for us once to see the and Bailey Three Ring Circus, we were generally discouraged for setting our sights on establishing a high wire act like the great Walinda's. But through the youngest, we managed to partially realize the dream and live vicariously, all without a net. One of Doug and Mike's greatest loves when playing with the younger ones was to lie flat on their backs and have John or Mark stand straight up on the palms of their hands as they lifted them up into the air. As long as they didn't bend their legs, they could stay aloft for a good while, elevating their normal view to new-thought-of, unthought-of heights. Part of the benefit of this exercise was that Doug and Mike could get an arm and shoulder work for football season without resorting to the weight set we kept in the corner of the garage. For Mary, Tom, and me, since we simply didn't possess the arm strength to lift them for long periods of time, we played airplane with them. Mark would wrap his ever-present blanket around his neck to form a cape, and we would position his hips onto our feet as we sat in an upside-down crawling position, Fingers interlocked with our toddler pilots. John especially loved this game. The beauty was that one of us, if one of us got tired, we could trade off with another sibling, and the youngsters could stay aloft indefinitely, or at least as long as we grew weary of it and headed outside for the yard or for the street. It is because we so often kept them aloft that I believe both John and Mark developed a fondness for rock climbing later in life. One of the inevitabilities of infancy and toddler status is that you seek comfort and security when the boundaries of your world begin to close in around you, and your lack of control over your life begins to become pitifully realized. John found comfort in his thumb and enjoyed it so much that the tiny appendage turned into a wrinkled, translucent color from staying constantly between his lips. We never released it, he never released it long enough to let the pitiable thing dry out. We often discussed among ourselves the very real possibility that would simply rot and fall from his hand like a baseball card, sodden and pulpy from being left in the rain, leaving our brother a four-fingered grotesque. Mark, however, always wanting to establish his unique identity and possibly aware, even though younger, that a rotting digit was a hardship and smelly as well, chose to take his comfort in a fraying and disintegrating blanket, which he dragged with him constantly. We worried less about this choice than John, since the blanket had practical uses, such as serving as a costume, keeping one warm, and even, if dropped randomly to the ground, doubling as a mountain fortress where your platoon of two-and-a-half-inch green army men could stage a battle. There was a certain utilitarian function to, the Mark, to Mark's blanket that didn't exist for John's thumb. From the point of view of the older brothers, these habits just became part of who we were who we saw our younger brothers to be. It was an ingredient of their identity. and didn't really bother us that much. However, from the point of view of the older sisters, things were very different. The blanket and the thumb should not and would not be encouraged. Both Mary and Catherine were adamant about that. Should either of the youngest show up to kindergarten still clutching and sucking, the shame would be ours to bear. It would be known despite the fact that we attended different schools. It simply had to be stopped or we risked the mockery of a public spectacle. While most of us chose to look at it in the light of a humorous quirk or mannerism, the girls did have a point. Mom and Dad seemed oblivious to what was happening. and It was incumbent upon us as older siblings to take the matter in hand. It would be up to us to purge the pair for their own good as well as ours. If Mom and Dad would not, we must. After all, someone had to raise them. Mark's habit seemed easiest to remedy, so we addressed the blanket first. The first plan was simply to wait him out. Surely, we reasoned, there would be time during the day when we would he would absently drop his blanket on the ground and move on to greater adventures and play. From here, it would be easy for one of us to set up a distraction to attract his gaze and simply have another one of us swoop off the blanket and hide it away. We were prepared for some tears and a bit of noise, but hopeful that we could occupy him with something else to ease the transition. Dugger Mike would be in charge of hiding the blanket, since, being the tallest, they were best equipped to stow it from Mark's line of sight. Mike especially, long a veteran of securing unnoticed the various weapons of childhood, from pocket knives, matches, small links of chain, etc., was a wise choice for hider. We did not, however, count on the attachment Mark had with his blanket, an attachment beyond emotion. Like the interwoven fabric of one of Bomb's afghans or quilts or homemade outfits, which we dutifully would wear to church services, Mark would weave his fingers, hand and forearm, until the blanket and his being were a single, knotted entanglement, ensuring him a few, if any, moments of separation from his beloved security blanket. This probably explains the slightly putrid odor of spoiled milk that soaked the blanket as well as most of the right side of his body, On further thought, this would be no easy task. We looked at the setback as just that, not a hopeless lost cause, but rather a battle which we assured ourselves needed our regrouping and planning to better ensure the outcome. We must consider our adversary. All was not lost, but we had gained a bit of newfound respect for the little one. For the moment, we turned our attention and energies to the next operation, de-thumbing John. We considered many courses of action, none of which we could agree upon unanimously. Mike suggested breaking some of Mom's sewing needles off and sticking them in through a thimble. We would then attach the thimble to the targeted thumb, and John could not help but reject it in certain, though not deadly, Michael reassured us, pain. We considered the proposal deeply, but under Mary's guidance, we thought it best not to have to explain any blood or disfigurement to Mom or Dad, and so the idea was rejected. Douglas, using his early and developing engineer's mind, saw an angle we had not considered. Many of our early plans consisted of subtle and not-so-subtle psychological attacks on John's conscience. We considered questioning his pride, his manhood, his membership in the sibling fraternity, even to the point of expulsion. Surely one of these threats would be strong enough to move him to discard the thumb ritual. Ultimately, we abandoned each of these as plausible but unlikely possibilities. We realized early in our interplay with him that our brother John was possessed of a stony determination and will. In fact, his will would become the stuff of legend and prove one of his most endearing and beneficial strengths. There was simply no giving in on his part. We rarely challenged him to games of uncle for fear that we might break his fingers before he would ever agree to yield. Mike tells the story of how growing up, John was always challenging him to arm wrestling matches. Since Mike prided himself on his strength and agility as a top-notch football player and athlete, the contest was severely one-sided as John would quickly be dispatched. Once Mike traveled as an adult to visit both John and Mark, who were attending the same college. Upon walking into the apartment, he was immediately challenged to a, a match. Weary and tired from the repeated contest, Mike told John that while he would wrestle him again, he had beaten him every time, and that this would be their last match. I outweigh you, and I'm stronger than you. It's just physics. Still, John persisted, and again was vanquished. This, more than anything, speaks to his spirit and determination to never back down. With John's young, though becoming more and more apparent doggedness as a major obstacle to most of the plans we could devise, Douglas saw the problem in a different light. What if we didn't make him quit? What if it was his own idea? Brilliant we would devise a way to make it his choice. We brainstormed every possible idea, including subliminal messaging on a tape recorder hidden beneath his pillow. This was a non-starter since John had a strange habit of bouncing his head rhythmically off his pillow as he hummed himself to sleep, culminating in his exhausted body collapsing into a deep sleep, thumb vacuum-sealed in his mouth. Getting a tape recorder under his head was considered far too dangerous and possibly concussive. We next considered applying layers of band-aids or gauze around his thumb. Catherine, playing nurse, would be the most believable strategy. By enlarging his thumb to something too big to place in his mouth, he had no choice but to reject it. And if we could keep the hospital game going long enough, he would forget he even relied on the thumb. The plan collapsed when Mom called from the bathroom not two days into it, when we were in the collecting supplies stage, asking us what had happened to the two brand-new boxes of Band-Aids from the medicine cabinet. We abandoned the idea immediately, believing that personal safety and secrecy were a higher concern level than John's thumb-sucking habit. Things were beginning to look grim when Doug suddenly smiled and said, Tabasco sauce. It was as if the cataracts covering our creativity suddenly dissolved. We all began smiling in agreement, Not long before, we stopped on a short weekend trip at a place in Louisiana about 50 miles from our Baton Rouge home. The place was named Avery Island, home to the McElhinney Company, which was the producer of Tabasco hot sauce, and where you could get a free guided tour of the factory. Better still, as part of that tour, each visitor, regardless of age, was offered a parting gift of a small one-eighth ounce glass bottle of Tabasco sauce, fresh off the factory floor. Truth be told, we were not a spice-loving family. This probably accounts for the blandness of the weekly red beans and rice, flavored merely with a bit of salt and pepper and an occasional bay leaf. We did, however, love free stuff. On this particular trip, we dutifully endured the tour and waited in line as the tour guide passed out the tiny bottles. Michael fortuitously gladly received his bottle and politely asked if he could have a couple of extras to give to his friends who were unable to join us on this trip. The McElhinney guide gladly assented to Mike's request, giving him not just two or three single bottles, but two handfuls of sauce containers. Mike wisely stuck these immediately into his pockets of his shorts before Mom or Dad took notice of the delay in the line. He was set for a long time. Heading home, Mike proposed a man contest to see who could go the longest without asking for water after downing one of the gift bottles of the undiluted sauce. He had no takers, and we looked on with awe as we watched him open and digest the one-eighth ounce bottle of fire. It was not something we would see him repeat, but to his credit, he made it home without asking for water. The remaining Tabasco bottles would be the grail that we had been seeking, and they were stored beneath Michael's bed. He was glad to help the cause. With about fifteen bottles of the hot sauce, we would have fifteen opportunities to get John to reject his own thumb. We never even got close to finding out whether this ingenious plan would work. As it turns out, Mom and Dad, in their wisdom, had their own strategy for ushering the two youngest boys on their journey to growing up without blanket and thumb-sucking. The plan was brilliant and devised to flow with John and Mark's obstinacy. We looked on in humble awe as Mom asked John to join her in the living room one evening, the very same evening we had planned to soak John's thumb in the hot sauce before ushering him to bed. She asked him if he still wanted that action figure that, for some reason, had not arrived at Christmas. For over a year, John had coveted a a seven-and-a-half-inch action figure of Batman. A deal was made, but only if Mom and Dad would throw in a Robin action figure for Mark, as John explained, in order to prevent him from sucking his thumb. And in three short weeks, the 21 days needed to break a habit, the two youngest among us could be found creating and reenacting new adventures for the dynamic duo, all without a blanket or a thumb nestled within the mouth. It may take a village to raise a child, but it may never happen without older siblings being willing to pitch in, or at least parents, who might just be smarter than we thought.